Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Literary agents are drowning in queries and the manuscripts that accompany them. Most writers are rejected before an agent even reads the manuscript because the query letter hits the wrong way. There's an art of querying an agent. If the agent is intrigued by your query, then they may read the manuscript or a few paragraphs of the manuscript. Agents have a superpower of being able to filter the promising from the not promising. Literary agent Sumia Roberts of HG Literary says she looks for the three S's in a manuscript submission, style, structure, and setting. Today, Sumia will talk about the three S's and shed light on what authors are doing wrong in the query process. Welcome, Sumia, to our podcast. We are thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about all things querying and literary representation. So. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey of becoming and acting as a literary agent? It sounds like first you were a book scout and what is a book scout? And then how did you transition into a literary agent and what does that exactly entail? I feel like when I describe literary scouting, it makes publishing sound even more obscure <laughs> and <laughs> difficult to understand than it really is. But essentially, Literary scouts, I like to say they write book reports for a living. Book publishing has a translation arm, and there are really great publishers all over the world who like to evaluate American books for translation and publication abroad. So the, the short answer is that literary scouts read manuscripts that are being sold in the U.S. and sometimes elsewhere, but mostly in the U.S., like when they're sold here to publishing companies, and then they give their thoughts to international companies who may want to translate them. Because those editors, obviously, they don't read English as their first language, and they have many, many, many submissions. It's a really interesting job, and you also get to really know everybody in the industry. That's one of the reasons I really liked being a book scout. But my real first entry into publishing, I was a, an editorial assistant at a, an independent publishing company. And what did that entail? Was it a glorified secretary or did you do anything editorial, really? <laughs> no, quite the opposite, actually. I felt like I really got to see all the sides. Obviously, I was pretty un, untested, but at a really small company that did a lot of really beautiful books, I got my hands on on everything from putting in proofreading marks to weighing in on the cover to lots and lots of manuscript evaluation. And so it was a lot of fun because we were a really pretty small team and we were independent. So we, were, we weren't owned by anybody else. And we were on the West Coast, which was kind of gave it a different flavor from like the big New York publishing houses. So I'm really grateful to have had that sort of independent 
experience. And I try to bring that spirit to my agenting practice as well. So how did you transition to, into becoming a literary agent? And can you give us a feel of what your day-to-day looks like in that role? As much as I liked being a book scout, I wanted to get back into an editing role because that's truly what I sort of fell in love with and realized that as an agent, you really have a lot of autonomy and can get in pretty much on the ground floor with the manuscript. So I transitioned to agenting via a role as a foreign rights director for an agent who has a really amazing list. Her name is is Susan Gollum. And at the time she had her own agency. And you may have heard that agenting and publishing in general kind of works on an apprenticeship model where before you kind of work with your own authors, you sort of learn the ropes from somebody else. And Susan was a great person to, to do that with both as an editor and as a a champion. So that's sort of how I I transitioned over. So I I did the the translation rights and alongside I started to build my list. And it was it was then that I really started getting my 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 feet under me in terms of my personal taste and the day-to-day. And the day-to-day can be really hard to describe for an agent. I'd say The biggest myth is that agents spend a lot of time reading (laughs) during the day. A lot of, especially evaluating new work is really kind of has to be the last priority because the first priority always has to be your clients. So that can mean anything from making sure that their financials are in order and they're being paid for things coming in. It can mean being on a publicity call for a book that's coming up. It can mean sending out requests for blurbs to other authors for your book. It can mean talking on the phone about edits. It can mean looking at the schedule of dates for author readings. It, it's, it's really just a lot of different hats. And I think that's like one of the things that is most enjoyable about the job, but also most misunderstood. We interviewed a literary agent, Miriam Altschuler, a couple of weeks ago, and she said that she actually looks at queries and manuscripts on the weekend, like in her free time, because she simply doesn't have time for it in her, in her working day as a literary agent, which was really illuminating. And, and she said she gets just hundreds and hundreds of, of query letters. Has that been the case for you? And has it increased since COVID? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think all agents of all stripes receive far more query letters than they're able to like properly evaluate in a day. And also a good agent, I think, is is going to be prioritizing again their their existing clients and their existing clients' needs as not just their representative in making a brokering a deal, but as their truly as their advocate, especially since the big publishers are you know, have merged and are merging. They're not out to get anybody by any means, but authors increasingly need sharp agents to be by their side throughout the whole publication process. So I think it's, it's really not unusual for editing and certainly manuscript evaluation and reading to be done on off hours. But if you think about the length of time it takes to just even read the average, the average novel is what, like, 80, 90,000 words, that's time consuming. And other, even proposals, like 
the kind of evaluation you need to be doing for any unpublished work just takes time. I had a quick question about your transition from being a book scout to then being mentored and being an apprentice. Part of that is one, developing your own editorial chops, what you like, what you don't, and also a lot of that editorial gut that you were developing as, a, and as an assistant. But is there also a side of relationship development so that when you do reach out to, let's say, an editor at Harper's or HarperCollins, that they, they actually will respond to you? So is there this relationship forming piece to becoming a literary agent? meaning building relationships with other editors at these different houses? Absolutely. And I think a lot of that, it was formed when I was a literary scout, but having your, exactly, having your kind of calling card as an agent takes time. And authors need to think about that when they're choosing an agent. I mean, there can be really big benefits to having a relatively new agent, but it does take time to create a sort of reputation and to make those acquaintances and to really start having your submissions be considered seriously. You mentioned that a literary agent generally tries to put their existing authors at the forefront and develop them. So how many new authors do you take on in any given year? Can you give an estimate or are you not currently taking on new authors? Or are you always looking for that one that stands out? Or can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's really hard to say because it's such a moving carousel <laughs> in terms of things, things happening, people getting on and off in terms of like maybe an existing author just finished their manuscript and it's now going through the production process, which takes about 18 months. And during that time, my author most likely won't really need me. So things might open up for something else, but I never know when an author will come to me. And that's always such an exciting day when one of my existing authors comes to me and says, hey, can I send you 100 pages or 50 pages of something I'm working on? So I, you always want to leave some, some room for that, but there is also I think from most agents, if not all, just the eternal thrill of finding a connection with a new author, whether it be somebody academic or a journalist who has just a really great beat and a really great idea, and you want to approach them about a book, reading an article or a short story somewhere. So even if you're not actively soliciting queries, I think most agents are just always looking for that like frisson of something that feels like it's speaking to them. Part of our job as agents is to is to to sell. I mean, it took me a long time to realize that, oh, I guess I'm a salesperson. <laughs> because it, it, it seems like when you're working with books, it's so much more than that. But that is the, the model of our job. So it, we do have to kind of keep keep the door open to new work. You talk a lot about editorial judgment and, you know, you're looking for something that kind of gets you excited. And I read an interview that you did about the three S's, which I thought was so helpful. Can you talk a little bit about when you're reviewing a manuscript, what those three S's are? Because, and then I'd love for you to go into a little bit more depth on each, but I thought it was so helpful. Well, I think one thing that can be really frustrating for querying authors and just authors in general are, is a sort of jargon or the descriptions. And I feel this as an agent too. Sometimes you ask an editor what they're looking for and they give you 
the best approximation of, of what they want to see, but it's very vague. So I tried to really break things down. There's a lot of things that go into a choice, but for me, the, what I find stands out tends to be these three S's, which is style, structure, and setting. So style meaning the writing, specifically in memoir and fiction, although nonfiction as well. For me, an author really has to be making choices on the page. Their writing needs to feel controlled and like the writer has really, really chosen the voice and the point of view. It's hard to describe when something feels stylistically there for me, but I know that style is a really critical element of a manuscript. It is so so hard to talk about. You talk about voice and we're always trying to convey to the people in our community, you need to develop your voice. And it's such a kind of abstract idea. And and I think you only really develop a voice by actually writing for one and you, you discover it over time and you, you experiment, but are there any other ways that you can kind of develop your style or know, oh, I have this style or I have this voice? Well, I think especially for writers of fiction, writing short fiction is the best exercise Mm. in style. I think there's a reason why short fiction and short stories are the utility of choice for MFA programs, because they're capsules of writing that really require an author to think about how to tell that story and in what voice to tell it. And if all of the writing is done in the same way, then you're not really telling that story well. So there's a difference between making a stylistic choice and having a a unique voice. So there are some writers that you, you know their writing when you read it. They have a, they have a calling card or a sort of imprint of, of, of the voice but you'll notice their craft when you look at something like dialogue or when you look at something like one of my other s's setting how much the world is built up around the characters so i think short fiction is can be very frustrating because of the endless submission process and the fact that not a lot of readers really engage as much with short fiction as they do with novels, but it is a good way of, of practicing that. And also, I think good writing requires just self-investigating, not just about what you say mm-hmm. and what you want to say, but how you say it. That's really what I look for and what excites me. You were talking in the same interview. I thought it was just so great. I really kind of honed in on this section, but you mentioned that setting has to be so vivid that you can see a character in it. And so I would imagine the flip side of that, an underdeveloped setting is where the the character doesn't make sense or it just seems too obvious. Can you talk a little bit about what an underdeveloped setting looks like in your mind? Yeah, I think sometimes you feel like a character is um, very much in their head. So this is the downside of what we call voice. So voice has to be stylistically tied to a character, unless it's the voice of the narrator. But usually when you talk about a strong voice, you talk about a voice that is of the character. So sometimes we're so trapped in the character's head and seeing what they observe that there's not a sense of three dimension around them. So for example, if they're 
thinking about a conversation that they had with somebody. We don't, we don't get to see who else was in that room, where it was, what the person that they were talking to or the character they were talking to was holding at the time, a coffee cup or a Slurpee from 7-Eleven. Like those are, those are all things that really inform the reader without the character needing to be the vehicle of that. So I think sometimes that the kind of other side of the coin of voice is making sure that your characters are moving through three-dimensional world and that you're viewing it as the writer the way you would see somebody on stage and not the way that the actor would necessarily look at it. And that requires quite a bit, I think, of revision. So there's always the frustration, I think, when you read something that is not quite there and nothing happens in the scene because it is in the head. It's all in the head of the character. And so you really don't have a good visual of where he or she is. It's 1930. 32, what was happening in 1930? I mean, was there anything really? I don't know. There's just no scene. It's, it's flat. It's really one dimensional. Right, exactly. And that, I think that's also why structure of my third S is really important because if you follow the narrative of whatever your, whatever your character is experiencing, you really run the risk of meander, of a very meandering narrative that doesn't hold the attention of the reader. Can you talk a little bit more about that in specific structure needs to create tension? Is that what I hear you saying so that the reader keeps on reading or how do you view structure more explicitly? Well, I think I, I draw on this idea of kind of the, like the modernist poets that they tended to sort of think that the way a poem was written, meaning like the, the actual the actual form, right? The, form. the stanza yeah. is the, yeah. It was as much a part of the discussion as the words themselves. So there's a sort of underlying idea, I think, when I read fiction, that the author is making a concerted effort to match the structure of their book with what is going on in the characters' lives or within the plot. And that's, it's sort of an abstract idea, but if you, you use like, say a very classical, a very classical example might be like the old man in the sea, like why that story told the way it was, it it really thematically, the way that not just the words and the activity, but the way the book is told mirrors the loneliness of like the protagonist or a lot of historical fiction is told in braided narrative because or like contemporary market fiction that is, has a historical element, I should, I should clarify. But that's because we want to see why it's relevant to us now. So the author is making that choice to braid it because they want us to be equally invested with the events of the past and their relevance to the, to the characters and also to the reader in a, in a contemporary way. So I think writing that's really well-developed will show that kind of those kinds of choices and those bones, why, why the author chose to tell the story the way they did. And of course, uh, in, a, in a kind of less pretentious way, <laughs> there's a story arc. Sometimes it's hard to nail down exactly when that story arc begins and when it should end. So just practically, let's say you've acquired a manuscript, you like it, 
you start getting into it and you go, man, what are the signals that the structure isn't working? Like you're reading along, you went, whoa, is it, is it like your interest, your interest is like, what's next? Because this is boring me. Is it boredom? Is it, is something happening in the narrative that you go, what? It's confusing. What are some of the signals to you? Yeah, I think all of those things are good, are good signs. When there's a lack of other characters or something that's dynamic that's introduced, I think another big red flag for me is like an info dumping where the author is sort of trying to get a lot on the page that usually by just saying it either through their characters or through the narrator that usually tells me that there's a story that needs to be told either the book needs to start earlier or there needs to be a backstory that's kind of following alongside and that's another structural thing that is very hard to do and is really important fiction is having parallel stories and backstories where characters are other characters besides the main characters are developing things in the background so it doesn't necessarily need to be in a separate chapter but you have this kind of dynamic very complete sense of the plot so that i think that's also but sometimes it can be more subtle like i I evaluated something that was pretty interesting this year that was sort of experimental in the way it was written there was one storyline that was very centered in real life and then the other storyline was very fantastical and they sort of lived side by side and I thought this was a really interesting choice because the, the real life narrative was sort of hard to read. And so the fantastical storyline really felt almost like a fable. They were very connected and, and I really liked the idea, but then I was trying to figure out why it, didn't, it wasn't working for me. And I realized it was because the real life story was sort of unpacking something that had happened in the character's past and, and that storyline was all about that character and the character's sort of evaluation of it. So that really didn't move very much because it was sort of like, you want to see the house, but really what you're seeing is like boxes in a moving van. Like, you know that it's all there, but you're waiting. You need to wait for someone to unbox all of it. So ultimately I've decided, you know, that that was going to be a really difficult thing because this, the story needed to be told, all of the events of the story needed to be told in, in the regular story arc, as opposed to from the perspective of something that had already occurred. So tension, I think, is a really good word for it, but not always immediate where it, it just, it's, it's not just about becoming bored with the voice. It's, it's more about, again, like how much is the, is the manuscript um, succeeding at its goals, I guess. So we're going to turn the conversation a little bit to the querying process. And (laughs) you have a lot to say on this topic, and it's all extremely helpful. We've had literary agents talk about personalizing their pitches, but you have some caveats about personalizing a pitch pitch too much. And what, what, how do you personalize a pitch poorly? I guess I always like to think of the conversation around querying as asking authors to think about why these things are suggested. And if you think about it from the perspective of an agent, the reason of personalization 
matters is usually because it's an indication that the author themselves sees something in their writing from the, so something that everything else that they put out in the world, be it their client's work or their interviews or whatever, that resonates. And that's why that catches our eye. So if what you're saying is not actually true, or it doesn't actually resonate with the author, then it's going to be meaningless. So that goes for referrals. Sometimes people like to fudge a referral and say, oh, I was referred to you by this so-and-so person. That doesn't mean anything unless I know the person and I can ask them, hey, does this really seem like it's for me? I often get this this feeling, I'm querying you because of this book that you represented. And then the writing, the plot, the pitch, nothing has anything in common with it. So that leads just, that leads me to believe again, that it's sort of just put in there meaninglessly. And what I really want is to work with authors who are committed to their work, who know what their work is. That's really important. Even if it's not what we might call like highly commercial beach reads or something, I think you can, you can tell when somebody really knows what their work does. So personalization really is only as useful as it is true. So my main advice would be for authors who are querying to slow down and do it in rounds and really think about their rounds. This is something that agents do as well when we submit work to editors. Read about the agent. Try to try to really see if you connect with them. There are multiple people I work with now because they had a feeling about which of the agents working would really kind of get their work, that, that have a sensibility that, that matched. And then they were patient, they were polite, they were professional, but they were also pretty dogged and stayed in touch. And I could tell from their engagement and their pitch that, again, like they were professional, they, they didn't pester, but it was clear that they were like, oh, okay, I, I know what you do and it's like what I do. So I would like you to consider my work seriously, as opposed to a, a sort of like, I Googled your name for 30 minutes, found the name of an author that you worked with, I put it into my pitch and hoped that that's enough. So my advice is really to research agents really kind of like try to figure out if their sensibility is right and then do it in a round and send it out with a lot of sincere personalization and not just doing it because somebody told you that it was a good idea. So I was talking with an agent the other day, uh, back and forth, and she said that because one, publishing is a business and they're slammed, that generally agents, like she said, I will only take these referrals from, from a writer that where I'm already working with. Do you take those in a sense differently and, and more carefully and review those more carefully? Yes, but I'll, I'll tell you why. It's not because we're like an insular group of people who hate outsiders. It's because really at the end of the day, like I said, we really don't have a lot of room for new writers as much as we would love to take something new on every day. We just have to be responsible. It's a business. Not just that, but in order to do the job well, 
what would you, what would you, how would you think of me if I just said, yes, I, I take on a new author every week, I sell their book and then we never speak again. That would make me a terrible agent. So it's, it's really just a, a question of, keeping your reputation and keeping your word for your other authors. So it's, hmm. it's not like, Oh, I don't like, I would definitely make more money <laughs> if I was taking on more authors, but it's not a sustainable way to run a yeah. literary agency. You have to commit to certain people. So referrals from people who really know you and know your work. Again, like if you put yourself in the mindset of an agent, it's really not about thinking that everything is bad. Uh, on the other hand, it's uh, we're constantly wishing we could take more on. It's more just, okay, what is the quickest way for me to get to something that is really going to resonate with me? And the closer you are with somebody who knows your editorial work, your style, the things that kind of fit your wheelhouse, that's likely more likely to be something that you're going to connect with. But it, it isn't fair necessarily to authors who don't have those connections. So I think that's where it's, it's kind of important to put in your bio everything that you can, even if you've kind of taken like classes somewhere or you've worked with an author at an MFA program or a, mm-hmm. even a, a conference or something like that, where it's not necessarily about name dropping, but it's about showing how much investment you've put into your work. That's really good. And so many of the authors that we work with are aspiring authors. They want to start at the top, right? They've never taken a literary course or a creative writing course. They haven't joined any organizations and yet they think they're going to have a bestseller on their, on their hands. So there's kind of the, I think you're being really realistic and this is a really healthy dose of realism for our audience. Well, what's a good example of, you, you talked about the kind of author who is dogged. You used the word dogged dogged, excuse me, but, but not pester you too much. Talk about what that means. What's someone who does it in a way, even though you may not accept that manuscript or that query, how do they do it right? How do, how do, how do you do dogged right? Well, I think, first of all, get rid of the mindset that you need an agent. It sounds counterintuitive, but my, a lot of my authors who were most dogged, so to speak, are really doing it out of advocacy for their work that they have focused on. So I, I think sometimes you think you're finished with a manuscript or you're done with something and you really want to get it out there in the world. And so you're like, okay, I just need an agent. And you read some things and then you write a query letter and send it to 150,000 agents because there are so many of us. So the people I'm talking about, it's not so much about their activity as it is about their research. So the, the authors that I'm, that I'm speaking about just really researched me and the other agents and also were very widely read themselves. So one of my authors who is a really beloved author of mine is a bookseller. He doesn't own a bookstore or anything. He just has worked in bookstores for many years and is one of the most well-read people. So he was already kind of familiar with the titles that I represented because he engaged a lot with contemporary literature in the, in the genres that I work in. So there's not really any shortcuts in the sense that 
like I could tell from his query letter and from the way that he wrote the query letter and also his follow-ups that he really did know the authors I work with. Every agent kind of has a wheelhouse. Not, not every agent. Some people are very much generalists, but a lot of agents have kind of a wheelhouse or a sensibility. And he sent me a query. I thought it was interesting. Didn't quite get to it right away. It was sort of, he, he followed up very, again, professionally, but always making it clear that like I was his top choice. And when push came to shove, I could tell that we would work well together because of the way that he was interested in the authors that I represented, that he knew his own work and it's, and the value of his work. And he didn't just need any old agent because I'm not any old agent and nobody else thinks of themselves that way either. So if you think your work is just, it just needs a representative, then you don't really understand the marketplace. So you should be definitely reading in your genre if you're an author. And if you haven't read a book or bought a book or just obsessively looked at a lot of other authors in your genre for a while, then she should probably ask yourself why you want to have your book published. There's almost a sense of desperation to pestering is what I hear you saying. Like you're my only hope and I'm, I'm just kind of grasping for anything that will stick. So I think that's really, really insightful. Thank you. Yeah. It's a relationship. You know, the author agent relationship is really unique because I don't work for you and you don't work for me necessarily. We are like collaborators, we're partners and it relies on a lot of trust. It relies on a lot of transparency and nobody wants to be thought of as a utility, neither the author nor the agent. One final question to wrap up this interview. And it's one that we ask all of our agents whom we talk with. And that is how important is it for an author to have a platform, especially in like the fiction category? And how do you define platform? Is it like, do you see it as larger than social media? And if so, how do you define it? That's a great question because I really value sort of non-traditional platforms for my authors. I think there's a lot of gatekeeping in traditional publishing. And because of that, we have, there's just a lot of stories that I would have loved to read over the years that never got to me. So. I think it can be hard to it can be hard to say what platform is for fiction writers. I think anything that shows a commitment to writing fiction. So for example, I have a lot of authors who don't have MFAs, but maybe they have publications, which means they're spending a lot of time doing that work. Like the short fiction is not just about building platform, it's about being a writer. And I think that's, again, like there are no shortcuts. It's like, you really have to want to do that work because you want to get this voice right. You need to get something out. You need to figure out. It's like, you know, you're building your craft. Like you, you just don't get hired as a master carpenter the first time you pick up a hammer. So if I see a bio with publications, even if it's not in a major review, I am always interested especially if there are multiple, because that means the author is either connecting to a community that's in the small press, small publication world and engaging their writing there. And also any kind of fellowships and retreats, anything that shows me that, that an author has taken time away 
again, to just kind of develop their work. It's always really good to have a website if you're a querying author and don't worry if it's simple or you don't have a million links, just, just that step means you're taking yourself seriously as a writer. But it's a, yeah, it's a sort of a difficult thing to describe because I don't really want to say you need an MFA and you need to have all of these publications. I just need to know that you, it sounds so silly, but that you, you really can't not write, that it's, that it's something that you are working towards all of the time. That is a great, wonderful, encouraging note to end on. Thank you so much, Mia, for being with us today. You've given us so much to think on and so many challenging ideas and nuggets of advice and insight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And I just one last note for querying writers. If you do a round of, of submissions and you get, you know, a lot of passes, just take that as a sign that you need to revise and, and try again, because it really is just about timing and luck and hard work as much as anything else. So it can take a while, but when you get there, it's worth it. That is absolutely positive, encouraging. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to talk to you. All right, Dave, before we sign off, let's do our words of the episode. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I think you went first last time. Why don't you take it? All right. My word is inscrutable, and it means not readily investigated, interpreted, or understood. It often describes what is mysterious or difficult to comprehend. So I found this from a newspaper in Minnesota, an article called How to Decipher Your Electric Bill in Minnesota. And here is the quote. The electricity sucking summer air conditioning season is upon us just as energy costs are soaring. With that in mind, consumers might be scrutinizing their electricity bills, yet they'll find some information that seems inscrutable. What follows is a guide for deciphering power bills. So I thought that was a really good use of the word inscrutable in something that people read every day, the newspaper. So there is application for these vocabulary words. I just want to say that or point out that whoever wrote that, that was good writing. And whatever you're learning in whatever writing class you're taking or whether it's road trippers or whatever it is, there's, there's a place for really good writing everywhere. And I just think when she juxtaposed or he juxtaposed with, with that in mind, consumers might be scrutinizing dot, 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 yet they'll find some information dot, 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 inscrutable. I just think that's great writing. So I just wanted to, to comment on that. And notice how she personified summer, electricity sucking summer. You know, it, it's, it, it's just good writing and just proves that even in a, like a small hometown newspaper, you can hone your craft. So yeah, I, right. I, I agree. There's good writing to be found even in newspaper writing. All right. So what is your word, Dave? So my word is done. D-U-N. So it can be a noun, like a dull grayish brown color. So sometimes they'll refer to a horse as a dun, and it's referring to the color, and which is almost nondescript. So it's kind of marked by dullness and maybe even a sense of drabness. It's just, it's just dull, right? But it, they call them duns. It's, it's really a color. But it also can refer, like in fly fishing, a dun is 
this adult stage, there's a couple stages of a mayfly. Adult stages, there's two, I think. When they first emerge from the water, they're called a dun. So it, a mayfly is one of the most common insects that trout feed on, since I'm a fly fisher. You have to understand mayflies. But, 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 there's a verb, to done, and that means to make persistent demands on someone, especially for payment of debt. So you might say they, were, they would very likely start dunning you for payment of your property taxes. All right. It's been another great episode of the Journey 66 Writing Podcast. We're glad that you joined us. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm-hmm.